Well, welcome to today's Real People OC. I'm happy to have on the phone with me Janine K. Iannarelli. She is a jet broker, and we've had her on the show before. She's with Paravion Limited, and what they do is they buy and sell aircraft internationally, usually pre-owned jets, but uh, she's given us some insight into the aircraft business before, but more importantly, she was just on the ground in Brussels two days before the bombings there, and she had a fair amount of insight. She stayed in the airport across the way and can give us kind of a visual picture of the landscape and just, you know, the general traffic flow of that airport and the conditions that produced um, just the tragic events that are uh, probably still unfolding there in Brussels. Janine was there representing the private aviation concerns, and they had some talks about security, which would be of interest to us and our listeners. So I thought we'd listen in to her insights and hear a little bit about an insider's perspective on the events in Brussels. So welcome, Janine Yonarelli from Paravion. Thank you so much for stepping in and giving us some insight about the environment and what's going on there in Brussels. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Kimberly. Thanks for this opportunity. Uh, well, Brussels, as you can imagine at this particular moment, is a bit of a tense situation. I wouldn't say that was the case while I was there last week. Certainly there was heightened security at the airport both Thursday and Friday at a minimum because the EU was meeting. And whenever the EU comes together, then there is a greater military security presence, uh, mostly at the private aviation side, because the diplomats are using a handling facility that is adjacent to the main terminal and the tarmac, but it's more of an isolated area and certainly is better contained. Okay, so tell me about, well, so you were there for an interesting reason. You were there to discuss aviation, but can you give us some insight about um, where the attacks were based on, you know, you walking through and experiencing that airport, you know, being on the ground? Uh, Absolutely. Well, uh, for starters, I was staying at the main hotel, actually the only hotel right there at the airport. It is directly across from the departures area. And if you can imagine walking out the front door of basically a linear airport, one main terminal, uh, there's maybe two, three very narrow lanes of traffic that are all flowing in one direction. You walk across the walkway, and there you are at the airport hotel. So I was there for three nights, and my room overlooked the airport and the departure area. And I look back thinking every morning at about 7-ish or so, I'd look out the window to survey the activity, and I commented to myself as how incredibly busy every single day of the week at that airport was and uh, the traffic flow. And again, I, I can't describe it quite enough how it's sort of a funnel, that if you were following the main road into the airport and you arrive at the area where the uh, terminal is, the hotel, and then there's airport parking. And it is really rather narrow just to go through there for dispatch of passengers. It's completely conceivable that people were offloaded with bags, grabbed baggage carts, and then wandered around in the departure area. Departure area is, you know, just a huge open area. There are some vendors and shops, uh, such as there was the, I believe, a Starbucks coffee. There's a small pharmacy. And then there are all the different lanes. 
that uh, consist of the check-in for the various airlines. And like many international airports, there is usually a big board or smaller little um, uh, signage area that indicates what lane you should go to for the check-in or what desk you should go to. And I happen to have been flying United, and I mean, I remember that it was B9 where I had to go check in. And what brought it into sharp contrast was when I saw pictures from yesterday's events at the airport, I could see one of the lanes or deaths marked B5, and it makes you realize how close you were to all the action that was going on. Oh. But literally, I slept three nights across the street from that whole area. Well, and it sounds to me like from the demographics of the, not the demographics, but the geography of the area and the way the people were funneled into narrow space, it was, you know, from a predator-prey standpoint, it was, it was almost like easy pickings, wasn't it? You know, but uh, let's not necessarily distinguish it from any other major airport around the world, with exception in the U.S. I mean, I'd have to say that, and this is something that is starting to come into sharper focus for me, most airport departure areas, you know, or terminals, as we call them, where you get dropped off, you walk in, and what is it? It's just check-in, right? There's not necessarily uh, vendors selling anything. Right. It's just the check-in area. You have to move, at least here in Houston, at Intercontinental Airport, at uh, United's main terminal, you have to go past security before you have an opportunity to buy anything, whether it be water, soda, coffee, or whatever dry goods that you want. Right. It's not, we, don't, we don't create the environment for lingering. You have to exactly. be there very purposefully to get in and on the plane and check and, in. And I have a feeling that that is something that airports around the world will take into consideration and realign how they have a flow of traffic. Because my mode of operandi for international travel, really for any travel, has always been no loitering. I have a purpose. I get dropped off. I go to the check-in, I drop my bag, I get my boarding pass, I head immediately to security because you are safest in an airport environment once you're past that security. Right, right. So being that this was in the departure area, um, you know, it, isn't, it wouldn't be fair to say that it's so different because we still don't have security going into those departure areas where we are. No, we don't, but we would probably be much more observant of people who stood out, who, who otherwise should have stood out, and certainly anyone who's just loitering around. We also don't necessarily provide baggage carts at check-in. Uh, if you notice, think about most of the terminals you go to. Uh, you have a porter who takes your bags, or you have curbside check-in. But right. you don't necessarily always find a baggage cart that you can load your bags on right. and tool around that open space. So I, I think in a way it is a bit, at least in my experience, more European, more international, to find a more social environment where you find people waiting there or large groups saying goodbye to someone. Because departures is not quite the accurate description for any listener to picture. It's really, let's call it the check-in area, check-in registration. You know, you're walking through the doors of your main airport, you see all the different airlines. Uh, they're not necessarily laid out like we're accustomed to here in a horizontal line. They could be in uh, multiple parallel lines, and that's where you have to figure what lane you need to go to and then what desk you need to go to in order to check in for the respective airline. 
So it's a little bit more congested, a little bit more crowded, if you will, more opportunity for people to just linger. Um, and, and I think that's perhaps the next step in how do you start to further protect the flying public is you limit who has access to that area. I mean, you know, this is a discussion I've started to have with my peers as to where is the line of demarcation? Where do we push it back to where you can finally say it's safe? And there's probably not a point, but you can start to contain it, I think, a little bit more as you get closer to those terminals. Right. So now while you were there, you were there in discussions with your aviation partners on the subject of travel. Can you give us any insight as to what some of the buzz is and what people are talking about? Uh, well, you know, actually we covered the topic of security. Uh, let me backtrack and say that this was the European Business Aviation Association. They had scheduled their annual general assembly. <clears throat> I have been a member of this organization, but not what they call a full general member, in part because it's restricted uh, um, to aircraft owners. And I am an associate member since I am a service provider to the industry. And they had decided to hold a special day for the associate members, first time ever. And I literally had gotten the call two weeks before with the suggestion that I like, perhaps would like to participate. I brought up a subject that I thought should go on the agenda, and it's basically what the financial institutions do, KYC, know your client. And I said, I think we need to stress the importance of that in international aircraft transactions because they're going to come under greater scrutiny. And the conundrum is we don't have the means by which to necessarily comply with that, either because it's cost prohibitive, we don't have the tools available to us that may be available to the financial institutions. So that's the segue I'd like to use into one of the topics. We were broken out in committees. Uh, I probably naturally sat on the sales and acquisition committee, and compliance was a big part of our discussion. And I know that some of the other committees, which included charter brokers, basically the individuals who secure ad hoc or on-demand use of aircraft in a commercial capacity, they talked about security. Uh, we talked about the changes that have come about on the airport. We talked about some of the changes, or, or I should say added security, uh, started by the individual members that maybe go above and beyond minimum requirements. And we, again, focused on how do we get to better know our clientele. And clientele is maybe almost too broad a term because not so much in my business because I buy and sell. And generally, whoever I represent, I've come to know very well. It's the people that approach us to buy the airplane or the charter broker who gets a phone call from someone who essentially is anonymous, though they get checked against no-fly lists. We don't know who these people are. And, you know, so it's always a question of how can we ramp up security, how can we provide added security across the board. And it wasn't just a matter of safety. Interestingly enough, it was about fraud because a number of the brokers have been defrauded by people who suddenly their credit card doesn't work anymore post-flight. Hmm, interesting. Very interesting. So now when you were there, did you feel any, um, any concern about your safety, or was there the buzz in the air of just general everybody sitting on their on their edge of their seat waiting for something to happen? Was there any insight 
No, something um, might happen? I, no, but I will tell you, I wasn't 100% comfortable, and it really was only driven or a product of one event. Now, the event was held at the airport, so it was a natural for me to just simply fly in. But I'm a downtown girl. You know, I like to go to the center of the city, stay in the hotel, even if it's a bit of an inconvenience to commute to where I need to be. That being said, this trip, I said I wouldn't do that. I mean, I made some promises to family that, or assurances I provided that, look, I'm just holing up at the airport. What's going to happen there? Hello. <laughs> and um, the organizers decided that they wanted everyone for the bit of the camaraderie. We were having a scheduled dinner. Well, they were taking us to a traditional Belgian salon to have a very formal dinner, which happened to be rather close to the palace certainly not terribly far from, you know, part of the EU and uh, Embassy Row. And they put us on large tour buses in rush hour traffic. As soon as you hit the heart of the city, you're in these narrow streets, tightly contained, not moving freely. And I remember I texted my younger brother and said, I have never felt more exposed than I do right now, sitting in a bus. And I commented to one of the other passengers, uh, mind you, I was the only American, well, one of maybe only a handful. And my European friends are like, what do you do? You know, we're not about to give in. You have to live your life, and you have to trust. I, said, <laughs> I, just get, I get a little annoyed by that, that commentary, though, because, you know, part of being human, you know, we, we eat certain things to hedge our bets. We exercise to hedge our bets. We drive and save cars to hedge our bets. Our whole life really truly is hedging so that we can, you know, try to live longer lives. So it doesn't make sense to just go on about freely. I mean, you have to do it with some pause and consideration, wouldn't you say? I would. And honestly, they picked the most efficient way to move a large group of people, and I don't know how many there were in attendance, let's say 75, something like that. But in hindsight, and I frankly was thinking of it, that we really all should have just taken private cars or taxis, four to a taxi or what have you, and, you know, disperse us more along the lines at the same time. I, I don't think I'll do that again, get on a bus and ride into the heart of the city. Right. Just, you know, if someone wants to create mayhem, I don't think they're necessarily being selective and saying, oh, look, I could take out all the aircraft brokers in Europe <laughs> or... You know, the ADA, they're not thinking that. It's just pure carnage is what they're thinking. Right, right. And why make yourself a big bulletin board? That was the only moment of concern. I, I mean, otherwise, I have to say I felt rather safe because of the increased security, particularly since I was working at a private hangar, and the one day we went over that the EU had started arriving in force, and I mean literally the European Air Forces delivering their heads of state, the roadway leading to uh, the facility I needed to be at was uh, narrowed and closed off. There was a checkpoint, maybe 100 feet, maybe a little bit more than that, with military personnel with bomb-sniffing dogs. Now, I was being escorted by an employee, a senior-level officer of the company that I was traveling to, in a marked van that indicated it was that company. So perhaps I, I don't want to say perhaps. I know that they had the bomb-sniffing dog and mirrors looking under the car. Um, they checked ID, and it, it was 
far more difficult than it would on normal occasions to access this facility. And then there are two more layers. If you want to go outside onto what we call the ramp or the tarmac, so I felt fine. That being said, I did comment that given as narrow as the infrastructure is around the airport, and while they did have one lane closed down, I noticed oncoming traffic, and I said, gee, this isn't altogether logical because you should just shut the entire access road, even if it causes terrible traffic nightmares outside of the area. But it makes no sense to secure one half of it and give everyone else the ability to drive in the other direction. Right, right. So now, while you were there meeting when there were other heads of state in the, in the area, I mean, to me, I would think that would be a perfect time to strike. Do we think that the attackers may have been a little late, like something had gotten in their way and they weren't able to attack right at the time they wanted to? Well, the theory I've heard is the opposite, that they've sped everything up because of the capture of the weakest link in their chain. I mean, you have to think about it. This is a terrorist who dropped and ran in Paris, and he'd been hiding. Now, that's a whole other story, right, as to how can he hide in plain sight. But he dropped and ran. He got picked up. If I were a terrorist, if I were a terrorist, if I was another team player, and I realized that the weakest link is probably going to start singing, and we had big plans in the work, I think that's what happened. I, I would have to go with that theory. They just sped things up as opposed to being too late. I see. You know, the EU, as I understand it, meets literally as needed other than regularly scheduled, and I think the event that took place last week was something that was called rather quickly. I don't know how much advanced publicity there is. There's certainly some. I don't think as sophisticated, okay, now we're getting into subject matter that I, I, I have no experience and really perhaps no authority to comment on. It's all just theoretical. But I don't think that they're all that sophisticated that they could move far in advance of what their initial plans might be. Hmm. So, yeah, you'd think that with the EU, that if they wanted to really disrupt the city, that would have been the time. It would have been a nightmare to get everyone out of the city, especially when you close the airport and you've got, you know, the Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister of the UK and, you know, the Prime Minister from Turkey and everywhere else throughout Europe there in the heart of Brussels. I did notice that on my flight, my flight was back to D.C., that I think there were a lot of uh, employees of the state or diplomats or military. Maybe that's a regular route for that kind of passenger traffic. Hmm. But I did notice that, and that's probably also why there was heightened military presence in the airport on Friday, knowing that not everybody comes in by private plane. They come in by train. Train station is two floors down in the Brussels airport. And um, besides train, of course, the departures. And I, my flight left at midday. It's totally conceivable that people had finished the work that they needed to do in advance of, say, the leaders signing off on something, and they themselves were exiting the country. Well, it certainly is, um, certainly has been some mayhem there. And I'm wondering if, in fact, this is what they're counting as their retaliatory attack for capturing one of their own. Is that... No, I, I honestly, I don't think that retaliation is spur of the moment. Uh, I think that, I think along the lines of what we're hearing from other intelligence sources is that this is going to be an ongoing battle. 
it's going to be random. Random to us, probably predestined by the people that are uh, creating this mayhem. And until we figure out what their overall plan is, I mean, instability is certainly part of that plan. And inciting fear into the general public is also part of that plan. Um, I, I think what happened on Tuesday was probably going to happen in the near term, and maybe they just stepped it up once again because part of their cartel was apprehended, and I think it wouldn't have taken much pressure to get him to start singing. So interesting. Now, being in private aviation, it's probably top of mind for many of you and your clients that um, perhaps finding your own means of private travel would be better than using commercial airlines and commercial airports. Are there any options for us that you can see for just regular folk to use private aviation? Well, of course, you know, private aviation, business aviation comes with a price, and it's not a price that's available to everyone. That's the difficult part about telling someone this is a better means of transportation. For those that are in a position to make use of it, or um, let's say you're a corporation that suddenly has a greater and realistic concern for putting key individuals on commercial airline flights. And it could simply be because you can't afford a delay and you can't afford cancellations besides the fact of security. Then I think it just becomes part of the new cost of doing business. It's the same thing that I heard 15 years ago when I was I'm still riding on airlines and mostly on airlines. There are, you know, business aviation users or providers in the industry are among the biggest consumers of commercial airline tickets. You know, we, we're integral to each other in a way. But 15 years ago, when I had the opportunity to sit in first class or business class, and I'd listen to the other paying passengers who were toying with the idea of the concept of a fractional share. And one business leader that I happened to sit next to told me, he said, look, if we're already spending 150000 200000 a year on you know, business class, first class tickets domestically, and the minimal share on a fractional airplane is along the same lines, of course, many reduced hours, you accept it and you move on. And part of their justification then, because this was pre-9-11, was the quality of the service had diminished. The amount of canceled flights, misconnections, lost time, rising rates of pay for senior-level executives that you cannot afford anymore to have those people idle for one full day. So the way to make it all productive, more productive throughout the system, is you pay the price of transport by business aircraft, but the return on investment was significantly higher because maybe it turned into a day trip instead of a three-day trip to visit a remote location or a manufacturing plant or multiple places or to do a road show. And, uh, again, that doesn't really answer your question for the average person, but that's certainly something that anyone who's accustomed to traveling, let's say, business or first, domestically, would start to reconsider their travel patterns and look at affordable options in perhaps a smaller airplane or at least on occasion or between select destinations 
because they are of the prime importance. You learn to travel smartly and tailor the use of aircraft, whatever variety of aircraft that may be. So interesting. Well, I'm glad you made it home safely. And, um, well, tell, tell our listeners where they can reach and find out a little bit more about what you do. Um, your website at Paravion. Can you tell us what that is? Absolutely. It's www.paraviontd.com. Okay, very good. Well, I'm so glad I got to touch base with you on this. Such an interesting story and really great to have uh, one individual's perspective that was just there and uh, meeting on these very topics. And I'll be back. I still have airplanes parked at the Brussels airport, so you know, as soon as that airport reopens and we regroup with the client base, we're going right back. Uh, yep, that's that's just what they they hope to stop. And happy to hear that you have that spirit <laughs> still intact, albeit albeit I'm still a worried mom, you know, nonetheless about travel <laughs> and you know with spring break happening. Of course, that's such a tricky time. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Kimberly, I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. Thank you again for the invitation. Oh, I always enjoy having you with us here on the airwaves at KUCI. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you. You all have a great day.